0: I'm Jacob Gottwalds, and this is Spiritual Awakening for Geeks, a show for independent spiritual explorers who seek peace of mind, better relationships, and a more meaningful life. I call this episode The Cycle of Spiritual Practice. The idea here is that for any given set of spiritual practices, there are many possible approaches or ways of engaging with those practices. This episode is going to describe 10 such approaches to dealing with uh, 10 10 approaches to spiritual practice. And the idea here is that we tend to cycle through these 10 approaches. So this episode is going to describe that cycle. Within that cycle of spiritual practice, I'm going to talk about four zones of spiritual practice. And the idea of these zones is that... um, Uh, In different zones, different things are guiding our actions. Uh, I'll talk about a distinction between reason versus intuition and a distinction between tradition versus creativity in terms of what could be guiding our actions. I'll talk about the benefits of each of these four zones and the problems that can arise when we don't have access to each of these zones. I'll also talk about how the traditional and creative zones of spiritual practice are related to power and exploitation in spiritual groups. So here's what you're going to get from this episode. By I'm hoping that by the end of the episode, you'll understand the cycle of spiritual practice. You'll understand the 10 different approaches within that cycle. You'll understand the four zones of spiritual practice. And you'll start to recognize your edges for growth in terms of which approaches and zones you're comfortable in and which approaches and zones seem less familiar. And I'll talk about how exploring those unfamiliar approaches and zones can empower you. I'm hoping that by the end of the episode, you'll get a little better at recognizing oppression and exploitation in spiritual groups and how those relate to the... uh, zones and approaches that I'll be talking about. Let's talk about... um, I want to give just a, a quick overview of the cycle of spiritual practice in terms of these 10 approaches to any given set of spiritual practices. The 10 approaches are yearning for practices, gravitating toward practices, Studying practices, learning practices, adapting practices, grokking practices, mastering practices, experimenting with practices, jamming with practices, and finally teaching practices. So that's the, uh, these are the different approaches to spiritual practice within this cycle of spiritual practice. Let's talk about um, each of these approaches in more detail. So the first approach is yearning for practices. So when we're in this part of the cycle of spiritual practices, we know we want something, but we don't really know what it is. We feel the lack or yearning for something that we don't have, but we can't define it, because if we could define it, if we knew what it was then we could just go get it, but uh, we're not there yet. We're just yearning for something and we don't know what it is yet. In a way, this is like a feeling of loneliness. Um, But instead of, um, uh, loneliness, instead of lacking people, what we're lacking here is meaning. Um, we're also kind of vulnerable in this first approach when we're yearning for practices because we don't really have anything to hold on to. Except for maybe we have some faith, hopefully, um, that there's something out there that might meet this need for meaning. Uh, But our faith is also easily squashed at this point um, in this approach uh, by those who are invested in the ordinary and who may feel threatened by the extraordinary. Basically, we're, um, we're yearning for the extraordinary, but we haven't found a way to access the extraordinary yet. Um, so there are, there are those who are invested in the ordinary, invested in the ways of approaching life and the world and the universe that, um, uh, that are familiar to us. Um, so there are those who will tell us, well, there's there's really nothing extraordinary. Um, all phenomena are ordinary. All, pheno- all phenomena fit neatly into our existing boxes and can be explained by our existing models. So, uh, at a certain point, um, when I was in this uh, stage of yearning for practices. Um, one of the things that uh, that I ran into was um, neuroscience and neuroscientific explanations of consciousness and awareness. Uh, neuroscientists uh, have sometimes tended to reduce awareness and subjective experience to neurons, kind of equating awareness with neurons and neuronal activity. Uh, And that was kind of depressing for me at a certain point when I was looking for uh, looking for something a little bit beyond the uh, ordinary material world. Um, I had a sense that there was something more than that, but I didn't know what it was yet. And, And so that was kind of depressing for me to read those neuroscientific explanations of things. The second approach to spiritual practice is gravitating towards practices. So this is what happens when uh, we've encountered a spiritual approach or a practice, or we've encountered someone who's done that practice, and we start to think that maybe that practice could actually fulfill our yearning. We start feeling drawn toward that practice, and often we don't really know why. Now, sometimes we may just skip the yearning phase altogether because sometimes yearning doesn't arise until we actually encounter a person or a spiritual practice um, that resonates with us. And then the yearning and the gravitating can happen at the same time. So I I experienced this gravitating toward practices uh Thing with um, the nonviolent communication community when I first encountered uh, Marshall Rosenberg, heard an interview with him and I immediately started feeling drawn toward learning more about that a similar thing happened for me with meditation I started feeling drawn toward meditation at a certain point and the more I learned about it, the more I knew that this was something that I had to learn more about and that I felt a resonance with As I started exploring spiritual groups, um, promoting different kinds of meditative practices, uh, I eventually um, started gravitating toward Tibetan Buddhism in particular. There was something about that that really resonated with me. So I was kind of zeroing in on, on something over time uh, through this, um, this experience of gravitating toward practices. So after we've gravitated toward practices, what happens next? Well, uh, when we kind of have zeroed in on some practices that, uh, that resonate with us, the next thing that may happen is, is we may start studying practices. We may find we, specific practices that we want to learn more about. So at this third stage of the cycle of um, spiritual practice, we start studying So we start learning practices and we start learning the conceptual views or frameworks that go with those practices. This may involve things like reading or attending lectures, listening to podcasts and online trainings. It involves a lot of hearing about practices, but not necessarily a lot of doing practices. So at this point we're using concepts to understand and make sense of practices. We may start imagining what it would be like to do practices, Um, but we're not necessarily doing them yet. So, uh, some examples from my life was, uh, there was a time when I knew I was looking for some specific uh, meditative tradition, some specific contemplative tradition, Uh, But I didn't know which one I wanted yet, so I was just kind of exploring them. I was looking around, uh, um, following leads, uh, doing research on the internet, exploring various meditation traditions. And when I'd encounter a a new tradition or teacher, I'd do some reading uh, to get to know that tradition a little better. studying practices can also happen when you start immersing yourself in the work of a particular tr- teacher or tradition. Uh, so that um, I, that happened with me with uh, Ken Wilber and his integral theory. I um, kind of zeroed in on him and uh, wanted to really understand his approach to things. So I did a lot of reading. I read a, a lot of his books. He had a... a website where he posted talks with with other people and interviews, um, so I just kind of immersed myself in his work and was doing a lot of reading and listening. Later, uh, when I started exploring specific traditions, uh, I started doing a lot of reading of Hindu and Buddhist texts, and um, this was hard work because uh, I found them pretty esoteric. Kind of hard to understand. A lot of jargon, a lot of um, uh, a lot of work translated from other languages, and um, so that took a lot of work to really explore the um, the Hindu and Buddhist leads that I was exploring as I was zeroing in on the practices that uh, um, that were going to be right for me. Later, I did the same kind of thing with the work of a spiritual teacher named Ken McLeod, and uh, he had a lot of Dharma talks posted online, and I think he still does, and I listened to a lot of them, I just um, uh, decided to learn as much as I could um, about his approach. So that was the, we've been talking about the third approach to spiritual practices, which is studying practices. Now let's talk about the next approach in the cycle of spiritual practice, the fourth approach, which is learning practices. So this is when um, uh, you actually start practicing and you actually start engaging with a a set of practices or a tradition. So this may overlap, of course, with the previous approach of studying. So you can be doing some studying of, uh, of practices and you can actually start doing them and learning how to do them at the same time in when you're learning practices you're really focused on following directions so uh, the idea here is you're trying to repeat what others have done to try to get some similar results to what they got when we start learning practices we start gaining experience with the actual sensations of practicing a uh, something that can happen at this in this approach is we can get overly focused on detail when we're learning practices so an example when I was did some brief exploration in the Zen tradition uh I was trying to learn how to do Zen walking meditation um and I was um Uh, I was, I really wanted to get the form right. And, uh, I had a a friend who was a Zen priest and I remember asking him at one point, so when I start walking, am I start, am I supposed to start walking with my left foot or right foot? Like, which foot do I start with? (laughs) And he just kind of laughed and, and I got the sense that, um, it really didn't matter too much to him. He was like, well, I don't really, uh, concern myself with that much detail with these things. Um, and that was kind of an eye opener that, you know, even though form was important here, it maybe there were other things that were more important. So that's learning practices. That's the fourth approach um, in the cycle of spiritual practice. The fifth approach is adapting practices. So this is what happens uh, the, when you're adapting practices. This is what happens when you've been, you've started learning some practices and you realize that. Some of them just aren't really working so well for you because um, your mind or your body just can't do certain aspects of the practice. So you have to adapt it to your your own personal needs and constraints. A couple examples from my life. Sitting cross-legged. Uh, so this is um, a big part of um, various meditative traditions that, that I've explored. Um... And it really was difficult for me. Uh, I am probably one of the um, stiffest people that I know in terms of my legs. They're just not very flexible, and sitting cross-legged was really difficult for me. So um, I had to find ways of, um, well, adapting my body to the practice and also adapting the practice to my body. I um, I found that it was important for me to alternate sitting cross-legged with other postures um, to kind of give my body a break and uh, give my body some variety. Um, and that was helpful. So I, um, I never really did uh, long, long periods of sitting cross-legged. I found that was just um, too difficult for me. And so I would alternate with walking meditation, uh, with just sitting in a chair, and with lying down as I meditated. And I found that um, that worked pretty well for me. Later, I totally gave up sitting cross-legged because I found it was messing up my knees. I was starting to get random knee pain and um, eventually realized it had to do with uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor. And um, so I, I was like, okay, enough of that. I gave it up, and my knees have been a lot happier since, and um, I find I can meditate just as well in other postures. Another example of adapting practices has been um, my experience of hatha yoga. Um, My wife uh, used to teach yoga, and when she would see me doing yoga, uh, she would kind of cringe, and she'd have to restrain herself from giving me... uh, advice on um on how i how i should be uh holding my body in different ways um and uh but yeah because again my body's pretty stiff and i could not always do the the poses or the postures exactly the way uh maybe the way they were supposed to be done so i just found ways that that worked for me and recently i've uh given up yoga um as well, I've just found that um, that yeah, I, it's just too easy for me to get injured doing yoga, and um, so finding other practices like breath work and ecstatic movement um, that are just a little less demanding on my uh, stiff body. So that's the fifth approach is adapting practices. Um, the sixth approach in the cycle of spiritual practices, is uh, grokking practices. So this is when uh, you start mindfully attending to the experience of whatever whatever the practice is that you're doing. And you start accessing your inner teacher. You get a little less directed by other people's ideas. And you find that your mind and body actually know what to do. This happens after you've repeated a practice for many times. An example from my life is qigong. So I um, I studied a, uh, I did a little bit of studying of a certain practice of uh, of qigong, um, and um, uh, and I started doing it regularly. So at at first it took a lot of um. Uh, attention to just remember what the various um, uh, movements were, and to remember the sequence of movements. But after a while, um, I found that that there was no longer any effort required to remember these things. And I started focusing less on following instructions and more on how the practice felt to me, more on the inner sensations, the uh, subjective experience of doing the practice. And I found that as I did that, that subjective experience of the practice started informing how I actually do the practice. So that's grokking practices, the sixth approach in this cycle. The seventh approach is mastering practices. So this is what happens when you've done a practice many times over a long period of time. And when you've done that, you may develop a high level of skill in the practice. At this point, the practice is fully integrated into you and your being and no longer requires much thought. You don't have to think about what to do, and the practice no longer requires much effort. There's not a whole lot that I have mastered in terms of spiritual practices. I tend to be more exploratory and I like to explore a lot of different things and like a variety of practices. But um, there is one thing that I think I have developed some mastery of, and that is um, social skills and emotionally intimate relationships. Uh, This was a long, hard road for me. I am... I think I'm, I have some, I probably have some mild autism and, uh, consider myself an Aspie, uh, and because of that, um, uh, learning social skills did not come easily for me. It actually required work. Um, it wasn't just a, a natural thing that happened all of a sudden, like it does for most people, especially in adolescence. But I did care about um, relationships with other people, and I wanted healthy relationships. I wanted good social skills. So I just kept working at it, and um, uh, and over the course of my um, young adult and adult years, um, with a lot of um, studying and practicing relating with people and relationships... I found that I started getting better at, uh, relating better at social skills and better at relationships to the point where now, uh, I make my living as a psychotherapist. Um, and, uh, that's all about, um, uh, relating with people, relating with my clients on an emotional level. And, um, and I also really love facilitating group therapy, facilitating other people's relationships with each other in a group therapy kind of context. A big part of um, my learning about relationships and improving my social skills has been my relationship with my wife, Emila. We've been together for 10 years, and uh, I think we both really learned a lot about um, ourselves and each other and relationships through our marriage. So that's mastering practices, uh, the seventh approach in the cycle of spiritual practices. Let's talk about the eighth approach, um, which is experimenting with practices. When you're experimenting with practices, you're trying something new, and you're just going to kind of see what happens when you try something new. There's two ways of doing this. You can alter practices or you can mix multiple practices. An important point here is that even though uh, I'm describing this as something that comes after mastering practices, um, you don't actually have to master practices before you start experimenting with them. Uh, You can start experimenting with practices uh, at really at any point. So there's two ways to experiment with practices. You can alter practices or you can mix practices. Uh, Let's talk talk about altering practices first. When you're altering practices, you may start to get curious about what happens if you try something a little different and you start exploring. You can start intentionally altering a practice a practice that's described by others. These alterations could be planned or they could be they could happen spontaneously mid-practice. Eventually as, as you start altering practices, you start discovering alterations and customizations that make a practice work better for you or that take you in new directions. An example from my life is um, alterations that I did in a practice called liminal dreaming, which is uh, something that I started learning recently from uh, someone named Jennifer Dumpert, who wrote a book called Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep, which I highly recommend. The idea with liminal, liminal dreaming is you're kind of exploring the, um, uh, the mental zone between waking and sleeping. Um, and in kind of full-on liminal dreaming, like Jennifer Dumpert teaches in, in this book, um, uh, you kind of let yourself almost fall asleep, but not quite, and you stay in that kind of middle zone between waking and sleeping. And explore all the kind of uh, interesting psychedelic type experiences that you can have in that zone, so I'm just starting to learn how to do that and and I've been doing that a little bit but um uh even though i haven't I certainly haven't mastered that practice yet, I've already started altering it and uh, experimenting with some alterations to that practice so I I started wondering, um, what would happen if I, even in my waking life, if I let my consciousness shift slightly toward the dream state so that, um, uh, so I'm still awake. Um, I'm still, uh, you know, watching a movie or doing whatever I might be doing in waking life, but I just let my consciousness shift slightly toward dreaming. And I found this is, um, really like doing that it's I find it really relaxing and uh, I find it gets me out of my um, intellectual rational mind where I spend probably more time than I should more time than I need to another way of altering of uh, sorry another way of experimenting with practices is mixing practices You could mix practices from the same tradition, or you could mix practices across multiple traditions. An example from my life would be mixing breathwork and ecstatic movement, or shaking. Uh, These are kind of two different practices, or two different traditions of practice, and um, that I was learning around the same time, and... uh, uh I found that when I was doing breath work um long periods of breath work, my body would start shaking a little bit um and uh and when I was doing my shaking practice, a big part of that was breathing and uh uh focusing on breath, letting breathing happen. so I was like, well, why don't I just do these both both of these things at the same time? doing some breath work and some ecstatic movement at the same time. And I found that really uh, created a, a deeper experience for me. The ninth approach in the cycle of spiritual practice practices is jamming with practices. So this might happen after you've done some mastering practices, and you've done some experimenting with practices, and you start getting a sense of what really works for you. Uh, you start doing some freeform shifting among practices that work for you in the middle of your practices. So as you're practicing, uh, you just start shifting among practices, um, altering practices, shifting among practices. Uh, so you're basically jamming like you would with if you were a musician, and you're kind of um, spontaneously uh, exploring different things, trying different things on the fly. I tend to do this sometimes when I'm meditating. In a, in a given session of meditation, um, I may, um, you know, there's there's many different uh, meditative or contemplative practices that you can do um, while you're meditating, and I tend to kind of shift between them on the fly, uh, based on just wherever I, my mind feels like going uh and that can be a kind of um a playful way of exploring various mental states it can also be <laughs> it can also be a way of just uh uh um i guess the downside of jamming is that sometimes jamming is just kind of um uh a form of um ongoing distraction as you know you're uh, instead of getting distracted by um, uh, by things around you, you're getting distracted by uh, different practices and um, different ideas about how you might practice. So that's that's the downside of jamming. It can be um, a little unfocused sometimes and uh, um, and so that's another thing to be aware of. Probably best not to jam all the time. The 10th approach in the cycle of spiritual practices is teaching practices. So as I've talked about in another episode, um, there's many roles in which you can do spiritual teaching. You don't have to be a teacher in the Buddhist sense, Um uh, I talk about this in an episode called Teachers and Teaching, which you can access at spiritualawakeningforgeeks.com slash Um, I have a va- very wide um, uh, definition of spiritual teacher. I consider basically anyone who is helping people grow uh, more empowered and more compassionate a spiritual teacher. So basically, in teaching, what you're doing is you're just describing what you've discovered so others can try it. Describing the practices you've discovered so others can try them. And uh, possibly you're guiding others so they can go where you've gone. So those are the, uh, the ten approaches to um, spiritual practice in this cycle of spiritual practice um and uh you know after you've been through all of them what happens next well uh in my experience i generally return to a yearning for practices um because after you've spent a lot of time with any particular practice any particular spiritual group you may find that you've kind of gotten what you need out of that practice or you've gotten what you need out of that group and You may even notice some aversion arising to the practice or to the group, you just start feeling ready to move on. This happened for me with um, nonviolent communication at one point, then later with Buddhism and integral theory. Uh, Even though I was so excited about these things when I first encountered them, uh, and I was gravitating toward them, eventually I found myself being repelled. (laughs) away from them, because it was just time for something new in my life. And um, so I moved on to whatever was next, and moved back to that stage, back to that uh, approach of yearning for practices, yearning for something new. I just described the cycle of spiritual practice with the ten approaches within that cycle, Now let's shift gears, and I'd like to describe four zones within that cycle. Um, And uh, so I'm going to take these these zones two at a time. So the first two zones are uh, the rational zone and the intuitive zone. And uh, so this is kind of a distinction between two... um, Uh, two different things, two different um, zones of practice. So the idea being that uh, some approaches are more rationally guided, where your actions are being guided by some kind of conceptual framework with explicit directions and explicit goals. Then other approaches are more intuitively guided, where your actions are being guided by non-conceptual experiences like your body sensations or your intuitive sense of what to do. The rational zone within this cycle of spiritual practices within this cycle of spiritual practice is actually very, fairly small. Um, the rational zone encompasses studying practices and learning practices. Then the intuitive zone involves all the other approaches in the cycle of spiritual practice. So that would be yearning for practices, gravitating toward practices. Um, and when we're gravitating toward practices, we're being guided by our intuition and by the call of awakening. Um, so after we've um, after we've gravitated p- toward practices. Uh, That's when we enter the rational zone and we start studying and learning practices. Then we kind of go back into the intuitive zone uh, when we're adapting practices, um, because adapting practices requires attending to your body and your mind. Um, It's still mostly rational because you're still working with a conceptual framework and you're, you're just altering that framework when you need to. Then... Uh, In grokking practices, uh, that's really intuitive. Intuition starts um, becoming your inner teacher. In mastering practices, uh, it's also very intuitive because you can't master practices without attending to your subjective experience and your intuition. Then, when you get into experimenting with practices, that's also very intuitive um, it's, it can be playful, intuitive, you're no longer following directions. And um, experimenting with practices may actually take us out of the conceptual v- views or frameworks that we started with. In jamming with practices, you're intuitively shifting between practices mid-practice, so it's also very intuitively focused. In uh, teaching practices, you're focused on um, creating instructions, not following instructions. And generally this requires putting practices into words, unless you're teaching completely by demonstration. But most, most teachers do put their practices into words in some ways. Most teachers are describing practices and their related views or frameworks, and they're describing goals and the intended results of practices. And they're communicating all of this with other people through writing, speaking, or demonstrating. So uh, that's the distinction between the rational zone and the intuitive zone. Um, Now I'm going to describe another distinction between the traditional zone and the creative zone. And I'll talk about how the traditional zone and creative zone relate to empowerment, oppression, and exploitation in spiritual groups. Let's start with the traditional zone. The traditional zone is uh, in the cycle of spiritual practice is... Involves studying practices, learning practices, adapting practices, grokking practices, mastering practices, and teaching practices. Um, basically, um, all of these approaches are dealing with a particular tradition, dealing with a particular um, set of practices. Uh in the traditional zone, you're staying within a traditional framework. And the idea is that in the traditional zone, it empowers you by mastering that particular practice tradition. So mastery is empowering. When you master something, it's, uh, it generally empowers you in some way. And that mastery may be threatening to people and institutions whose power depends on a scarcity of mastery. So ironically, you may find that um, in a given spiritual group, those whose power depends on keeping mastery scarce may find ways to restrict access to mastery to protect their power. So, uh, you may find that in a given spiritual group or spiritual tradition, there are rules about secrecy, about keeping the more advanced practices or views secret. This creates an artificial scarcity of resources that can help people master practices or traditions. So the effect of this, um, the effect of secrecy can be either beneficial or exploitative. Scarcity can add a certain mystique to advanced practices. It can also increase the power and status of those who have access to those practices. And that can increase the demand for those advanced practices. I encountered uh, some level of secrecy, ...within both Tibetan Buddhism and uh, Hindu tradition that I explored. And in general, I found um, I don't really like secrecy. Uh, I find it kind of annoying. And, um, uh, and it kind of goes against the, um, the uh, values of science that I grew up with... ...where the idea is um, it's all about sharing information and sharing knowledge... So that we can kind of uh, improve our views and practices. So secrecy kind of rubs me the wrong way. and um, uh, I never um, I just I just gravitated away from practices and traditions that involved a lot of secrecy. In the Tibetan tradition, I found that um, and the and the Hindu tradition that I explored, uh sometimes the advanced views and practices are not even written down, They're only offered in person, or only offered uh their or practices are offered in stages or levels where the advanced levels are kept secret. Uh this is I find this is changing these days as um as there's more openness about um, practices and traditions, even some of the um, uh, Tibetan Buddhist um, uh, practices and traditions and views that had been secret in the past, are um, now you can um, you can find them written down uh, in books uh, that you can just order off the internet pretty easily. Uh, one of my favorite books um, based on the t- Tibetan tradition. Is Locke Kelly's book *The Way of Effortless Mindfulness*, and that book um, kind of covers some material that I found very helpful. It's kind of the core of the um, of the parts of the Tibetan Buddhist um, tri- Mahamudra tradition uh, that that I found very helpful and that I had been gravitating toward. That was the traditional zone that we've been talking about. Now let's talk about the creative zone. In a previous episode, Awakening as as a Creative Process, I gave a high-level view of how we can engage creatively with technologies, teachers, and groups. So here um, I'm talking about a lower-level view um, of... uh, approaches that we can take to engaging with any given set of spiritual practices, not only as practitioners, but also as creators. So those three approaches uh, that we've already talked about are experimenting with practices, jamming with practices, and teaching practices. So this is the creative zone as opposed to the traditional zone. In the creative zone, we are moving outside of a given practice framework, and we're creating new frameworks. The creative zone empowers you through creativity, not mastery. So, um, whereas the the traditional zone empowers you through mastery of a given tradition, the creative zone empowers you through creativity. So who is um, who's threatened by the creative zone? Well, uh, the creative zone may be threatening to people whose power depends on tradition. So entry into the creative zone may be ignored, discouraged, or restricted by those people whose power depends on tradition. So how can you discourage people from entering the creative zone and just kind of playing around and exploring, uh, uh, experimenting, jamming, teaching? How can you, if you wanted to discourage people from entering this creative zone, how could you do it? Well, you could do it through group norms within a given spiritual group. Group norms are ideas about what's good and appropriate and what's bad or inappropriate. So if you just... um, if you have group norms that make it bad to experiment, jam or teach <laughs> then um uh then there's um uh you can use the power of a group to um keep people from doing those things within a a given institution another way to um restrict entry into the creative zone is through restrictive contracts so i experienced this Somewhat in the nonviolent communication community where there was a long contract, at least when I was um, when I was uh, a certified trainer, there was a long contract you had to sign in order to get that credential. Um, And there were aspects within that contract that that restricted um, your ability that restricted what you could teach and how you could teach it uh, if you wanted to call it. Nonviolent communication, what you were teaching. I want, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but um, it is. Uh, it was restrictive in certain ways. And again, this effect can be either protective or exploitative. Restricting access to the creative zone can protect the integrity of a given tradition. Uh, creati- creativity can be disruptive, and if you want to protect the integrity of a tradition, well. Uh, You can't just have people changing it all over the place. But that protection of the integrity of a tradition comes at the expense of freedom and innovation within that tradition. If there's too much restriction on access to the creative zone, a given tradition can kind of stagnate because it's just not adapting and changing. So that was the traditional zone versus the creative zone. And um, now let's talk about some questions to consider about all four of the zones that I've described so far. I've described the rational zone versus the intuitive zone within the cycle of spiritual practice, and the traditional zone versus the creative zone, two other zones within the cycle of spiritual practice. Here are some questions to consider. Which of these zones of practice do you tend to hang out in? In terms of the rational zone versus the intuitive zone, or the traditional zone versus the creative zone, where do you tend to hang out? And which of these four zones are unfamiliar to you? Which, which of these four zones do you find distasteful? Which of these zones are you afraid of? and which zones seem off-limit to you. My suggestion is that you consider exploring those zones that you haven't spent much time in, so you can discover their benefits. So for instance, maybe you're comfortable in the rational zone but not the intuitive zone. Then you might try getting in touch with your intuition, getting in touch with your inner teacher, the idea here being that uh, following directions will only get you so far. And beyond that, you need to get access to your intuition to, um, uh, to get beyond that point. Let's say that you're in comf- that you're comfortable in the intuitive zone, but not the rational zone. Well, you might ask yourself, are you able to set goals and stick to them? Are you able to follow directions if you want to? Learning to set goals, focus, and follow directions could help you. You Because uh, by doing that, you can benefit from what others have learned. You don't have to uh, intuit or create everything yourself. If you are interested in teaching and you're comfortable in the intuitive zone, but not the rational zone, um, you might consider whether learning to express yourself more clearly using reason and, and, uh, and the intellect, whether that could help you teach more effectively. I think um, uh, there's a lot of spiritual teachers out there who just don't really express themselves very clearly. And clarity is something I f- have found really helpful, both um, in the student and teacher roles. Let's say you're, tr- you're uh, comfortable in the traditional zone, but not the creative zone. Well, uh, you might want to consider loosening up a little bit and having some fun with your spiritual practices. You might want to consider doing some exploring and maybe even sharing what you've learned with other people. If you're comfortable in the creative zone, but not the traditional zone, you might want to recognize that you don't have to reinvent the wheel and create everything from scratch. You might want to consider what you could learn from other people and consider the benefits of going deep, going the distance, going a long way down a path that others have gone. If you're involved in a spiritual group, you might want to ask yourself, is access to mastery or access to the creative zone being restricted by your group's norms or by contracts with institutions within that tradition? And if access to mastery or access to the creative zone is being restricted in your group, you could ask yourself to what extent is this helpful and appropriate and to what extent is this exploitative or oppressive. If it's exploitative or ex- or oppressive, ask yourself how you want how you want to respond to this. In your own spiritual life, you could respond by choosing to follow group norms or not. You could choose to agree to contracts or not. Within your spiritual group, you could respond to exploitation or oppression by advocating for changes to group norms or contracts. And you can also respond by choosing which groups to be involved in. If your group is exploitative or oppressive in some ways, maybe it's time to move on. So, in summary, we're approaching the end of this episode. Let's review where we've been. For any given set of spiritual practices, there are many possible approaches or ways of engaging with them. And I've described a cycle uh, that people tend to go through of ten such approaches. We tend to cycle through these ten approaches, and I call these approaches. I call this cycle, the cycle of spiritual practice. Within this cycle, I identified four zones of practice, defined by what what is it that's guiding our actions? Is it reason or intuition that's guiding our actions? And is it tradition or creativity that's guiding our actions? I described the benefits of each of these four zones, and the problems that can arise when we can't access each of these zones. I also talked about how the traditional and creative zones are related to power and exploitation. That's it for this episode of Spiritual Awakening for Geeks. Thanks for joining me. You can find show notes for this episode at spiritualawakeningforgeeks.com/slash/the-cycle-of-spiritual-practice, where you can also post your comments. If you want to stay up to date on what's happening at Spiritual Awakening for Geeks, please sign up for my newsletter, and if you do that, you'll get a free copy of my book on meditation. You can subscribe at spiritualawakeningforgeeks.com newsletter. If you're enjoying this show, I hope you might rate it or review it on your favorite podcast directory, and that helps the show rank higher so others can find it more easily. Until next time, this is Jacob Gottwall's wishing you many vibrant, creative spiritual practice experiences on your spiritual journey.